Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Michael Reed Show. Tuesday morning, the 15th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11 a.m. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. European leaders meet this Thursday and Friday. Brexit will, of course, be the most pressing issue for the EU Council Summit to contend with ahead of the deadline of the 31st of October. It seems as though the chances of an agreement are becoming less likely this week, but the leaders could be back in Brussels again as soon as next week in the hope of getting Brexit done. There has been strong opposition in Northern Ireland to what is believed to have been agreed by the Taoiseach and the British Prime Minister last week as a pathway to a solution. Apart from the talk of paramilitaries bombing Limerick, politicians in the Democratic Unionist Party have warned Boris Johnson he will not get their support for a dual customs solution which would see Northern Ireland remain in the UK Customs Union but applying EU customs rules. The DUP's Arlene Foster and Nigel Dodds met Mr Johnson last night to discuss their concerns in a meeting that lasted 90 minutes there has also been some confusion in Europe about what the UK is proposing as it is so complicated it may be impossible to make it work. There's reports this morning however that the British government will propose a new text on Brexit to Europe in a bid to break the deadlock. Let's talk about this with Sinn Féin TD for Loud the Melda Munster and also AIM2 leader Patrick Tobin who's a TD in Mead West. Good morning to both of you and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, it's been a, a long three years uh, but I suppose credit where it's due, Imelda Munster. You'd have to take your hat off uh, to Leo Vradker, indeed, the Irish government. They're playing a storm, aren't they? Well, I mean, last week when Leo met Boris and they'd issued a joint statement saying that there was a basis for a deal and the detail at the time was, was scant, but he um, Boris had seemed to suggest that there'd be the checks down the Irish Sea, but he also said that the North would remain in the British Customs Union, but keep all of the EU rules and procedures on, on tariffs. And the EU were com- completely baffled by Johnson's um, proposals. It, it doesn't believe that the technology is there for what Boris is proposing. And you'd have to ask, I mean, I heard Donald Tusk in an interview say that if it is true that um, the Irish government and the British were able to see a pathway, that that pathway had not been seen or made clear to the EU mm. And they, as I said, they were baffled by the British proposals. And you'd have to ask the question, was the Taoiseach dazzled by Boris Johnson? Is it another Love Actually moment? You know, but well, maybe it is a Love Actually moment, but a Love Actually moment that the Taoiseach has with the Irish people. His satisfaction rating has increased 15% today. He's over 50% on 51%. The satisfaction rate with the government is up 11 points to 42%. And 60% of people are satisfied with the way the government is dealing with Brexit. But Leo, well, Leo needs to explain to the doll just what was said to him last Thursday that led him to announce that a, a deal was close. I mean, are people all, wrong? Well, I mean, let's see. It's true. It's changing every day. You know, mm. we're still. But sixty percent are satisfied so far. Are they wrong? Well, 
I mean, people are hoping for the best outcome. And I mean, Simon Coveney has been very thorough mm. on this, you know, and has um, stood fast on the backstop as the bottom line in protecting Ireland, mm. protecting the Good Friday Agreement. You Mar- know, Mary Lou MacDonald not doing very well. Her satisfaction down three. She's at 30%. Sinn Féin down two to 14%, down from 24% to 14% in the course of a year. Well, I, I never pass much remarks to poll. The only no, poll you judge is, yeah. is on the day, and you know that yourself. Yeah. And they say that um, Sinn Féin will do worse in, in the real poll than in the opinion polls. Well, you, I mean, you just don't mm. know that. It's mm. up to the people at the end of the day, you know. But um, the Taoiseach does need to explain in the doll just what was said to him last Thursday that led him to announce that a deal was close, you know, because mm. it appears from the EU... Um, that it's it's not close and everyone hopes that there is a deal yeah. and the backstop has to be the bottom line. It does appear that it's way. Not just our economy but our, our jobs, our livelihoods and the peace process. It's it's crucial, it's absolutely crucial but three years on we're still in the situation that there could be a deal, there could mm. be a crash out or there could be an extension. Let me go to Peter Tobin if I, I can. Yeah. It seems as though whilst there is confusion in Europe about how this proposal could possibly work, uh, that Europe, on the other hand, is taking its lead from the Taoiseach. We hear each of the European leaders refer to coming to a position based on what the Irish Prime Minister or the Taoiseach Leo Radker has to say. Would you agree with that? Well, I think it's interesting because a couple of weeks ago, we were debating this particular issue and we were debating the fact that uh, Boris Johnson had gone to Europe and stated um, that he had won something. And that win, from his perspective, was that the uh, back, he could find another solution that wasn't the backstop. And, you know, a lot of Irish journalists were scoffing and saying, well, you know, this, he's mad if he thinks there's going to be any other solution other than uh, the backstop. And here we are at the moment, and we're talking about a situation that's not the backstop. We're talking about a situation where um, if, if there is a deal, um, that the British would still administer uh, the... Uh, the customs and tariffs issues uh, with the north of Ireland. So it seems obviously that the European Union have taken a step away from the backstop on this issue. Also, it must be it must be said that in the last three years, the the fact that people don't know what's happening is making uh, awful damage on the economy as well. So the instability that exists from the lack of a deal over the last three years is in itself a major threat. Uh, and you know, I actually think that Leo has been a passenger so far uh, on this. And it, it is well. I'm you're all, at, at odds, obviously, with the people. Well, I think it's delighted. I'm delighted to see that he actually met with Boris Johnson for a uh, a meeting in the last ten days, because that's what we have been saying in Ainsley. Mm. We have been saying that the Taoiseach needs to take control over this and start to negotiate directly with the British Prime Minister. But well, you can't meet for, with somebody for, who doesn't want to meet you. Well, no. For years, actually, the British Prime Minister was looking to meet with the Taoiseach, but the Taoiseach's excuse was that the EU27 were doing the negotiations, and for at least two years, the Taoiseach hid behind mm. the EU27 well, and wouldn't when, negotiate. Well, that's with Theresa May, but uh, on becoming uh, the Prime Minister, uh, Boris Johnson uh, snubbed the Taoiseach. I, I mean, I think that has been uh, the interpretation uh, that most people have put on it. Well, in the first couple of weeks, there's no doubt that uh, Boris Johnson uh, seemed to refuse. Uh, he was playing hardball. He was trying to appeal to the extreme of his political party, and he refused to meet with uh, the Taoiseach. But it's very clear that the simple idea that the Taoiseach of a country should be the individual negotiating for you know our future with foreign governments 
is sacrosanct. Mm. We should never be negotiating uh, behind 27 other people on our particular issues. We should always have the veto with regards to what happens uh, to this country. Now, obviously, this particular deal uh, is, is a step forward from the Tories. And the idea that there would be a border along the Irish Sea is what we in AIM2 has been saying since the start of the year. Mm. Uh, it does not make sense that you have a situation that you would have a border uh, between you know, County Down yeah. and County Loud. And maybe we do have a veto. Didn't Angela Merkel tell Boris Johnson that we have a veto, or should have a veto? Well, it, 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 I think she said that Ireland should have a veto. Yeah. But the, the point of the matter is, in no European documents did it ever say that Ireland has a veto over what happens with the north of Ireland. Spain actually got it written in a European mm. document that it had a veto with regards to what happened with Gibraltar. But, I mean, when you watch these uh, big shots on the television, it's clear that Leo Radger is telling them what to think. No, but see, I don't have that much faith in the European Union, and I'll tell you why. Because 10 years ago, the European Union lent on the Irish nation with regards to the banking crisis. So when we were in need of help from our so-called European friends, we ended up with a 64 billion euro debt, while other countries, such as Crete, managed to get bail-ins, which didn't affect their economy so much. So all I'm saying is the European Union's uh, objectives are definitely aligned with Ireland's objectives now, but you can never be sure will that be the case in the future because Germany will make decisions for Germany's national interest and Paris will make uh, decisions for France's national interest. So we need to make sure that we're in the driving seat with, it, with regards to any negotiations. Uh, Imelda Musser, what do you make of the threat of bombs going off in Limerick or in Dundalk for that matter? Well, that's something that has to be condoned straight away. Even the, you know, the threat of anything like that and <clears throat> we shouldn't, you know, listened, um, you know, to that sort of kind of um, hyped up kind of threatening attitude. You know, I mean, at the the end of the day, the bottom line is we have to protect um, Ireland. We have to protect our our economy, our jobs. So that means you need to listen to it. You need need to increase security, don't you? Well, I mean, look at it. There was always the prospect that there would be threats of this Mm. nature to be made, you know, and um, I, I would hope that the DUP will come out very, very strongly in condemning those threats, you know. But any deal that we, we have to strike has to be legal and it has to have enduring guarantees that deliver for Ireland. And we can't accept anything else. And we also, we can't go along and just hope and, and trust and hope the promises from the British government. They, they can't be trusted. You can't you know, go what, along and hope Boris that... Johnson the originally presented to the EU as, as he termed mm. a workable alternative to the backstop was a very dangerous and reckless posi- proposition. You know, it would have hardened the border and given the DUP a veto over future development. Yeah, well, well nobody, no, nobody is just going along uh, blindly trusting uh, the British. Uh, I think that's pretty clear. But uh, the same uh, applies to security, doesn't it? And threats like that can't be ignored, nor should uh, the advice of uh, the PSNI uh, that uh, the IRA uh, or Republican dissidents could be targeting uh, some of uh, the border posts if uh, they come back into play. Well, I mean, that's that's something we'll have to look at further. Then the main thing is to get, try and get the the backstop as a legal, the the basic legal guarantee for Ireland. You know, and it's up. Do you, to, do, do you not think we should be looking at it now before it happens? Well, I mean, I mean, you're not surprised, are you, that this 
this threat came, you know, and we've always had that threat through the years, any attempt to get, whether it was um, civil rights, right through the, the entire... And you know, not in the slightest bit surprised, people so have been that. very critical of me suggesting it in the past, because well, can I, can I I've suggested it because it, it's obvious, it's obvious as a result of any border uh, that uh, comes about, or economic yes, union that comes also, about, as the unionists might see it. it's also up to the DUP to show leadership as Sinn Féin but that's you know it's up to but them. the DUP may fail and Sinn Féin may fail that's not the answer that's not the answer you know that's it's up to them to come out crystal clear is that enough do you think Peter Tobin First of all, I was amazed. I saw the headline in the Sunday Times this week, and I was amazed that the Sunday Times gave a platform to these individuals who have no democratic uh, mandate whatsoever and represent nobody that we know that we can be sure of. And we know for, how, that for how many years did you support people who didn't have a democratic mandate uh, that were involved in an armed campaign? Well, I, I've only ever been a member of a political party, and that political that, party that supported a, a democratic mandate that supported so. the provost. Well, all I'm saying, I, I joined Sinn Féin in, in 1997, which, as you know, is, is well after mm. the, um, the ceasefire, just as the cusp of the peace yeah, process yeah, 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 as well. Yeah, yeah. So the, the point I'm saying here is that most of the loyalist capabilities... You, oh, no, 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 don't brush over that, no, because you come from a, a, a republic, a Republican perspective. I am and, a Republican. And you'd have been a supporter of the armed campaign that uh, the provost engaged in. My, my views were always that the, the injustice that were in the north of Ireland led to the arms campaign. Okay, that's a convoluted way of getting around it's to saying sure, you supported it's, it's, the IRA what campaign, it says is that as did Imelda Munster. Uh, and those people didn't have a democratic mandate. Please right? let me finish the sentence, Michael. If you create a system of massive injustice, and if you prevent people from achieving those that justice in a peaceful manner. Okay, but I wasn't asking you to justify your views. I was asking you what your views were. And that's the convoluted part of no, what it, you're, it, you're it's doing here to, to, and, cloud, and, to cloud the issue, which is that you supported the Provost campaign, as did Imelda Munster, as did every member of Sinn Féin. And, 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 and that's, a, that's a campaign that did not have a, a democratic mandate. You're either asking a question or you're not asking a question. If you're asking a question, there has to be equal opportunity at least to answer the question. I did answer I did ask you a question. You were giving you were giving me an answer to a different question. First of all, Michael, in nineteen ninety seven I joined Sinn Fein mm. and I, I, I did so because of the peace process that was happening at the time. And I wanted to make sure that we had an Ireland which we will be able to resolve. You're doing it again. In, in, you're, you're justifying your support in, for the IRA campaign. Time, that was not the question. The question was, did you not support the IRA campaign? The answer to that is yes or no. And the answer, your answer is yes. You've told us before you supported what, it. What, what I we didn't you ask you to spend 10 I, minutes justifying it. What I've told you before, Michael, is that the IRA's campaign was as a result and a response to the injustice within the north of Ireland. But that's nothing to do with whether you supported it or not. The whole idea, if you wanted to bring about peace, my argument was at the time, you needed to create the democratic opportunities mm. to, create, uh, to create justice and to make sure that people have yeah. their rights. And that's okay. why and you supported the Good Friday Agreement. But I want to make this point. You have a situation that most loyalist violence over the years has happened on the basis of uh, British MI5 with regards to FRU, with regards to Special Branch, giving them the resources and the capabilities to mm. do that. That's not going to happen in the future. And second of all, I've made this argument a number of times. I've said that Leo Varadkar needs to make sure 
that he starts to prepare for the eventualities that are coming along. But Leo Varadkar is very similar to David Cameron. Leo Varadkar is at the edge of great change with absolutely no mm. plan and no way to deal with it. Well, that. he does have a plan. He has the support of the people. His satisfaction rating is the highest in the country. He's over 51% and he's not embarrassed about his views, unlike Pater Tobin, uh, who, seems to, who, seems to, who seems to have a need to want to justify why he supported the Provost campaign. Uh, and if that's the way you are, well, that's the way you are. Uh, Imelda Muster, I don't, I, don't, I don't think you're embarrassed about the support that you've uh, given over the years to the Provost, are you? No, I've never. No. I've always I've okay. never been. Um, yeah. I've always been yeah. um, said publicly that I fully supported course, the armed yeah, struggle yeah, yeah, yeah. all mm-hmm. through the years. But I equally supported the peace process. Oh, and with the same vigor and determination, uh, as most and people Pather's did, right but, but, some, but not everybody did. Yes. No, but Pather's right too. The support for the armed struggle came about as a response to British oppression, British occupation of our country, mm. diplomatic courts, internment, shoot to kill. Of course, but it didn't have a democratic mandate, right. which is the same uh, well, as the men and women. The 16 have a democratic well, that's the, the, mandate. It's neither here nor there. Do the you point do? Do you, lie, do you roll not, over and lie down when your your country's occupied, when you're facing oppression, when you're okay, face, well that, that, facing that, internment and all of that? Fair sort enough. Of thing. That's a straight he's answer. Also right that's when a straight he says, answer. But he's also right when he says about um, the the loyalist murder gangs. Mm. I mean, they were the MI5 was at the heart of those collusion. The saying at the time was collusion is not an illusion. Mm. And I think as more cases have come to the fore recently, it's proved. And Republicans were knocked at the time for saying that the MI5 and the security yeah. forces were involved. In but, it's, in but the point here is that it remains irrelevant, doesn't it? Whether uh, the unionist paramilitaries now or the dissident uh, Republicans or whatever name you want to put on these groups have a democratic mandate. It, it's irrelevant. If they uh, carry out these deeds, they carry out these deeds and that's all that matters. No, but Michael, the, the, the point here is how do you resolve the situation? How do you make sure that the transition to a united Ireland and to a peaceful Ireland happens properly? And the way you do that is you do it in partnership. So you create the structures now to allow people from a unionist background, a Protestant background, a loyalist background to start to feed in their, uh, their ideas and their opportunity to develop a new Ireland. And that's why we in AIM2 have been calling for a new Ireland form so that the government can invite all of the different political mm. views and the civic society views into a form where we can start to work on ways of, of ameliorating the worst aspects of Brexit, how we, we can develop the all-Ireland economy. Well, why don't you support Sinn Féin? Why, why don't you support... Work out a, a, how, how we have a united Ireland... Why don't you support Sinn Féin in doing that? Well, first of all, this has been, it has been a aim to proposal that we create a new Ireland form. And actually, we welcome the fact that Sinn Féin and the SDLP has actually given support to the idea of mm. a new Ireland form. Unfortunately, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, Labour and the Southern parties haven't done that as of yet. They keep, their heads are in the sand. They do not realise that we are at the precipice of great change in this country. And if you're in, at the precipice of great change, you need to start to plan in partnership together to make sure that transition happens peacefully and successfully. Uh, Melda Munster, do you believe uh, that we're uh, on the brink of uh, at least polling people on the border and that that could result in a united Ireland? And if that is uh, the case, uh, we're not going to see those bombs in Limerick. I mean, the issue of Irish unity, as, as we all know, has taken on a new dynamic because of Brexit. And it can't be ignored because the vast majority of people on the island of Ireland are against any artificial divisions in our country, whether they're invisible or invisible. And it's clear the partition has failed and Brexit offers that opportunity. And the prospect of a referendum on Irish unity has to be held in the near future. And it has to feature strongly 
in Brexit negotiations between the EU and the British government. And I, I often despair at the fact that like, we've had these bre- Brexit going, going on for the past mm. three years. And not once, not flipping once, has the Irish government or even the leader mm. of Fianna Fáil ever stood up and said, we want our country back. This is given us... And Brexit, you know, a oh, well, from Brexit gives us, and the Good Friday. They've said they don't want bombs in Limerick. That's what they've no, said. No, but the Good Friday. That's what they've said. To honour an internationally binding agreement, mm. the Good Friday Agreement specifically creates a mechanism for holding a referendum. Uh, and the government has specifically said that it will look at it when the time is right, but the time is not right now. They've had 100 years. They're saying that for 100 years. Okay. This offers us an opportunity to build our nation. I'm over time, I've got to leave it there. All Ireland bodies, everything. And we would never do unto the unionist people what they did to us. Everybody in a new Ireland would be treated equally with respect, their identities respected, all of that. Okay. We could never do unto them what they did to us. Got to leave it there. Thank you both indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Sinn Féin TD in Lao, the Melda Munster, Patrick Hobain, uh, the leader of uh, the AIN2 party and a TD in Mead West. The Michael Reed Show. Now, uh, the budget uh, for next year will leave many people in uh, this country struggling because uh, the cost of living will rise, uh, but people's incomes will not rise in line with that. As a result, poverty rates are predicted to increase. This is according to the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. Dr. Tricia Keelty, Head of Social Justice and Policy with Vincent de Paul, is on uh, the line with us uh, this morning. Good morning to you, Tricia, and uh, thanks for joining us. There's a, a number of measures it has to be said that you've welcomed in the budget announcements for next year, but there's a number of things that you've been hoping for that were not delivered, that have not just left you disappointed, but concerned. Yes, so there has been welcome increases in certain supports for people on the lowest. For example, the living alone allowance increased. So that's really important because pensioners who live alone are more at risk of poverty, so it's good to see support. Um, increased in that regard mm. and we also saw um, improvements in supports for lone parents who want to increase um, their working hours or take up a job so given that lone parents are five times more likely to live in poverty improving access to employment is really important but the decision to freeze social welfare payments and the minimum wage means many people will be worse off next year because their incomes won't be able to keep up with um, increases in the cost of living. And it's not just the cost of living because there's a new tax that we all face into as well, the carbon tax. Yeah, so we had been um, concerned about the carbon tax for a number of reasons. We know that it disproportionately hits lower income households harder, and particularly people living in rural communities um, and people who have to commute long distances to work. Um, particularly if that's low-paid work, they're going to be impacted by the carbon tax increase. Now, the government did increase the fuel allowance um, as a means to compensate that, but the the issue is that the fuel allowance is a very Mm. means-tested payment. Um, Many people who are struggling um, with energy costs don't actually receive the fuel allowance. They don't qualify for it. Or or the the question is, will the increase, the €2 increase in the fuel allowance cover the increase in the cost of fuel as a result of the carbon tax? No, and what we've been advocating is that um, the fuel allowance needs to be increased significantly more mm. because since 2010, um, gas and electricity prices have increased 
um, by almost 30%. So the fuel allowance has lost its value in real terms. So it doesn't really cover the cost of energy even before accounting for any increase in carbon tax. Uh, I suppose you could argue that if uh, people are concerned about the price of fuel, they could insulate their houses uh, and uh, make them more energy efficient or if uh, they're travelling long distances to work, instead of driving, uh, they could get the bus. Well, the issue with the energy efficiency schemes, there is a good scheme available to people who own their own home, but the reality is a lot of people we're supporting who are struggling and um, experiencing energy poverty are actually living in the private rented sector. Mm. And there's currently no schemes available for people who are living in the private rented sector and there's not enough um, incentives there for landlords to upgrade their homes. And the last thing you want to do is have a negative impact on rents or the supply of housing as well. So it's very mm. challenging to actually... And, and even at that, there are grants towards the cost. Uh, I mean, there's still a cost involved for people who own their own homes. Yeah, well, there's two schemes. One is available to people on low income and that's mm. completely free of... Um, charge, but then yes, you have the better energy home scheme, which you have to pay up front. So if you're on a very low income, you're not going to be able to um, pay for the works, and then uh, although you can claim it back, you're not going to have the cash available to pay for the works up front. And then in terms of um, transport, mm. um, there's huge deficits in terms of rural transport links. Yeah, there may not be a bus, in other words. E- exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. people have to have a car. People rely on a car. Um, in uh, rural communities to get to work, to get, bring their kids to school and um, to get to the shops. Um, public transport just isn't an option. So, and many people that we support, they're never going to be able to afford an electric car. So there's no option to switch. So people are just going to have to absorb the cost. Um, and they'll be worse off as a result. We have an ongoing housing crisis in the country. Uh, The budget was a lost opportunity in terms of tackling that crisis and also a a chance uh, to invest in education, uh, which wasn't taken up on. Yeah, I suppose, obviously, in the context of the the current housing crisis with over 10,000 people who were homeless, the um, budget really didn't... um, uh, have the measures required to actually tackle uh, the number of people who can't um, afford a home. Um, so they have set a target for 11,000 uh, new social units next year, um, but the majority of housing need will be met through the private rented sector through schemes like the housing assistance payment. Um, and while that's important for people in the short term, it really doesn't offer people long-term security because you're still um, worrying about whether the rent will go up or if you will um, have to vacate the home uh, mm. for any reason. So there's no security there for people. Um, and the government continues to try and meet housing needs through the private rented sector and it's just not sustainable. Um, so there's not enough ambition around the actual build of local authority housing. And at the moment, they're not even meet, meeting the targets that they've set for this year. Um, so that's really disappointing and worrying for the people that we're supporting. Okay. And I suppose just in, in relation to education costs, um, in August we were taking 200 to 250 calls a day from parents who were struggling with education. Now there was some positives in the budget. The government have um, put forward funding for a pilot of free school books at primary school. and um, This is something that we've been asking for for a number of years. Um, it's a small amount of money, but it is a step in the right direction, so that's welcome. Um, but there was no um, uh, increase in the back-to-school clothing and footwear allowance. And a big issue that comes up for our members is that child benefit stops at 18, um, mm-hmm. regardless of whether the child is in school or not. And now that children are starting school later, and um, they're doing transition year, a lot of um, teenagers are uh, still in sixth year when they turn 18, but child benefit stops. 
Um, and that's a big loss for parents who are on low income. Okay, um, just ju- just very briefly because we're very tight on time uh, this morning, uh, Tricia. If uh, there is a Brexit deal, because all of uh, this was overshadowed by Brexit, as uh, the minister put it in his speech, if there is a Brexit deal, uh, should there be a supplementary budget? Um, well, I, I, we're not sure if that would be happening. There is a bre- Brexit contingency package, um, and for example, the social welfare. Um, has an allocation of 400 million um, and I suppose that's to deal with um, people losing their jobs yeah increases on the live register mm-hmm. but there's no allocation there to actually address um, the inadequacy of social welfare and minimum wage rates for people who are on low incomes who have to be faced with increases in the cost of food and fuel so if there is Brexit whether it's a, a no deal Brexit or an orderly Brexit there's still going to be an impact here in Ireland um, and people on the lowest incomes need to be protected okay. um, and we're worried that that's not going to happen. All right, have to leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Dr. Tricia Keelty, Head of Social Justice and Policy with St. Vincent de Paul. The Michael Reed Show. The Farmers' Journal has a little sympathy, it seems, for some of uh, the farmers who forced uh, the suspension of uh, the first meeting of uh, the newly established Beef Task Force. Yesterday, the editorial in the journal this week says all farmers and farm organisations should immediately condemn the aggressive behaviour that took place outside of uh, the Department of Agriculture on Monday and that a small number have dragged the reputation of all farmers into the gutter. Pat O'Toole, news correspondent with uh, the Farmers Journal, joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Pat, and thanks for joining us here on uh, the programme. It's not a question, you say, of whether you agree or disagree with the argument that the farmers were making. It's how they were making the argument. Yeah, and I mean, uh, it was our editor, Justin McCarthy, who wrote that, but I fully agree with him. Uh, it, it, this is not about sympathy. I mean... Uh, Farm, the farmers' journal would have massive sympathy with the plight of beef farmers. This is about uh, how we behave collectively as farmers in public and how that affects the public perception of us. Consumers are the lifeblood of farming. Uh, we require the consumers to pay good money, hard-earned money for, for our food and to prioritise the purchase of Irish food. So we need a good relationship with the courier who's all, or the consumer who's also the taxpayer who fund the various schemes that uh, underpin farming because unfortunately the price that's paid by the consumer is not enough to leave a viable income, especially for beef farmers. So the public perception of farming yeah. is very important. Also within the political sphere, We've always had access collectively as farmers through a variety of organisations to the wheels of power and the corridors of power, both in Dublin and in Brussels. And uh, that's very important because uh, farming is so regulated. Everything farmers do is governed centrally, not just in Dublin, but in Brussels as well. Okay. And uh, as a result, we need, uh, similarly, we, we, we need to maintain our good reputation and that can be compromised very but, easily. But just step back a, a, a bit from what happened yesterday. Uh, people sure. weren't happy with how people voiced uh, their anger, but why were they angry or who was responsible for the anger? Uh, because it was over the injunctions not being lifted on two particular farmers. Uh, who was responsible for that? Is it the farmers themselves? Is it Meat Industry Ireland? Is it uh, the minister or the government? Or is it Larry Goodman and C&D Foods? Uh, depends on your perspective, I suppose. Ultimately, Larry Goodman, uh, C&D Pet Foods, uh, the, the injunctions were gained by C&D Pet Foods against two uh, protesters during the protests. C&D Pet Foods was the only premises which was not 
uh, meat processing plant, which was uh, picketed. This was late on during the protest, during the second protest, and um, there were two injunctions served. They are still uh, being held uh, over the the two people uh, involved. That's caused considerable anger among farmers. Um, It really only blew up over the weekend. Mm. Uh, It's been a while since the... um, since the protests ended. But there have been, uh, we know that there have been contacts made both by the minister and by the farm organisations with C&D Pet Foods, with ABP, which is uh, uh, the uh, wholly owned by Larry Goodman and wholly owned C&D Pet Foods. There's a direct chain of, of ownership here back to Larry Goodman. So uh, the fact that they weren't lifted is on Larry Goodman. Um, the fa- Cormac Healy of MII was the one who got the flack yesterday and yeah. his fellow MII executives. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that what Cormac Healy would say is it may be owned by ADP, who are members of a- 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 MII, but it is not a meat processing plant and I have a limited control over it. So um, I think they shot the messenger yesterday. I think that's the biggest problem here. Cormac mm-hmm. Healy did not have the power to fix this uh, outside the building. Um, the, uh, but what is, there, what, what is there to fix, Pat? Sorry to talk across you, because th- this is the bit I don't I understand. Lift the injun- well, there was to be lifted. The, but, the but, injunctions but, have to be lifted. But, but what uh, difference does it fellow, make if your fellow, your fellow, Your fellow loudman, mm. uh, Raymond O'Malley, had an injunction hanging over him for a, a grain protest that I was at. He was mm. the county chairman. And the... Um, the uh, person at the time who was the grain chairman, Rory DC from Tipperary, they had injunctions hanging over them for, I think, six years mm. from the Competitions Authority, an agency of the state. So sometimes this happens. And I mean, these are not the first farmers to be in the firing line with injunctions. We've been here before, Michael. Um, and one of the things that we've well, got why, is well, a whole new swell of farmers involved here who, who, apart from anything else, have no... Uh, knowledge of the fact that that all this has happened before it gets sorted. It does take time, but it gets sorted. But the escalation mm. yesterday, uh, what it's led to is that the many issues which need to be well, that's uh, raised the problem, at the forum yeah. have been pushed back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and I mean, we, what we're what we've been seeing over the last months is the constant escalation of uh, feeling and the and and the. Uh, an ever-growing gap between processors and farmers. But is it a question of animosity? Because I, I still don't understand why C&D want a, an injunction against people protesting at, at their gates if they're not going to protest. And I d- don't understand why people are concerned about having a, an injunction a, against them if they're not going to protest. Okay. the the um, It's a huge concern to have an injunction against you because the injunction can hold you liable for losses. Potentially there's financial loss on the two individuals. So they're absolutely right to be concerned about having an, an injunction over them. It's, it's a sword over their heads. In terms of why Larry Goodman would do it, I've never met Larry Goodman. I've seen him on telly a few times. He's a very private man. Uh, he's a very powerful man. He's a very successful man. Powerful, successful people mm. uh, tend to push. And he's pushing. He's pushing back. He's been pushed and he's pushing back very hard here. Um, It's an awful situation because there are 100,000 farmers. uh, There are 10,000 factory workers. We need to restore good relations between uh, Irish beef processors uh, and Irish farmers who supply them uh, for the sake of the workers, for the economy. We've Brexit on the way, we've Mercosur on the way, Mm. and this is uh, a huge distraction. Uh, And these talks won't happen. These issues won't be dealt with unless these injunctions are are lifted. Is that right? Well, that's the way it looks at the moment. All the farm organisations are now calling for the injunctions to be lifted. And if... uh, if there's to be a further meeting of the task force, 
I couldn't imagine that the Minister will schedule a meeting of the task force uh, when the injunctions are in place because uh, we would have a repeat of the scenes from yesterday which mm. helped nobody. Right, uh, so we've a, a new problem resulting from what was hoped to be the solution. Um, I think the problems are very deep-rooted. Mm. The, 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 will the task force provide, provide solutions? Uh, it, it will help to examine the issues, but but it's asking the questions. Are the answers easily available? No. Uh, this is a very long uh, wind towards uh, profitability, towards viability, sustainability. Uh, the challenges for the beef sector are huge. Like, let's get real. Uh, yeah. Larry Goodman's making a lot of money, $270 million last year. Mm. So, like, there is money being made. It's just farmers aren't making any. OK, Pat, we'll leave it on that note. And thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Pat O'Toole, news correspondent with uh, the Irish Farmers Journal. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael. Yes, Liam phoned in during the discussion between Deputies Pather Tobin and Imelda Munster and he's not too happy with you, Michael, I'm afraid. He says, as as usual, you won't stop speaking and take time to listen to people. You're not doing this discussion any favours at all. We all know about the troubles. No need to be bringing it up now. We are in a very delicate stage of negotiations. Do you not realise that, Michael? Mm. Henry wants to ask you about what you were doing to Pather Tobin during that interview. I felt it was a disgrace uh, the way you acted towards him. And I want to ask you, Michael, that's coming from mm. Henry, mm-hmm. are you an Irish man at all? Oh, yeah. Well, well I am, but I also have a, a job to do. And uh, that's uh, to interview our guests. And uh, the idea of the interview is uh, that they answer the questions uh, that they're asked. And uh, if uh, you ask, uh, did you support uh, the armed campaign? Uh, you don't want a history lesson. Uh, I mean, how long is a radio programme? We only have two hours every day. Uh, and I mean, if you were to go along the lines uh, that our listeners are suggesting there and you ask well did you support the armed campaign uh, and by way of justifying that you went back to 1607 and said let, let, let me go back to the flight of the earls before I answer that uh, and I have a lot to say before I say whether I did or not uh, well you could be here for more than the two hours that we have available to us and it was a very simple straightforward question and I, I'm sorry uh, but no apologies uh, for looking for the answer and moving on to the issues of the day rather than the history Well lesson. Peter also phoned in on the same topic and mm. he says but Michael it's not just a yes or no answer It is well, Peter feels it's not. Mm. And he says, the discussion was about Brexit and a deal. And I feel you were very unfair to Padder, says Peter. In the context of the discussion today, it was a yes or no answer because Padder Tobin had said that the people who are posing a threat to the security of this state now have no democratic mandate. The point was the provost had no democratic mandate and that was a campaign that Padder Tobin supported, yes or no. And then the next question was to be, what was the difference between the two? Okay, Deborah from Navin says, as much as a united Ireland is something many of us would love, Michael, I don't feel now is the time to be talking about it. We need to try and get a deal secured in relation to Brexit without further antagonising people on either side. Mm. It cannot be forced, I believe. It has to happen organically, says Uh, Deborah from Navin. She is one of uh, the 60%, quite possibly, uh, who think that the government is doing a good job in terms of 
of how it's dealing with Brexit. Mel de Munster and Patrick Tobin, very critical uh, that the government have been, haven't been pushing for uh border poll at least, whatever, about uh, United Ireland. Hold that thought for a moment though because uh, we'll talk about something else uh, and indeed uh, the environment and uh, the sterling work uh, that has been done uh, by independent councillor Joe Bonner who's uh, been shortlisted uh, for a Pac-Man award. A very good morning to you, Joe. Yeah, good morning, Michael. Tell me a little bit about your community recycling days. Uh, This is at uh, the heart of your nomination. Yeah, um, well, we, we've been organising uh, uh, these community recycling days now for 50, almost 15 years, and uh, basically it's um, it's a, a one-stop pop-up event, a community recycling day, where, where we uh, we take over a car park and uh, we start at half six in the morning and finish at half six in the evening, and uh, you can, we come in and you can recycle all your bulky household and all your electrical goods. And you do this and, three uh, times a year, I understand. Uh, and yeah. Uh, they are suggesting uh, that this has resulted in 2,000 tonnes of material being collected. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. And in actual fact, the first couple of years, we, didn't, we, we don't have accurate tonnage on it yet, but we certainly have collected that amount. And uh, so, it's, yeah, it's, it's quite a significant amount of waste. And uh, we also bear in mind that that's compacted, you know, that, that, that's uh, the waste squashed down, so you can imagine the volume that would take up if it was no left, you know, uncompacted in the ditches and the drains and the hedgerows. Okay. Uh, so, um, and it's, um, like it's the, the people, the community love it and uh, it's um, like there's a need there for it and uh, the, also the other thing that it, that it tells me is that the, the community, like they want to recycle and they've got a willingness to recycle and they hold on to their waste until the event comes up. And uh, uh, although we don't have a recycling or a civic community close by us, mm. uh, that doesn't stop them from. We use this this um, pop up facility, so it's really good. And we have ex- we have expanded it over the years. We've got uh, two excellent service providers, ERP and Torrens Recycling, and we also done some work with Panda. And um, we um, at our events we have now we, we've got a free shred, confidential shred facility. We give away twenty five tons of compost. We collect batteries from Barristown. We've started a, a take a book, share a book. And uh, our goal really is now to reduce plastic waste. And we have taken steps now to, to we're working with, with um, um, uh, SuperValue locally here. And they've agreed to put, a, put in one of, the, one of the compacting machines for, for taking in plastic. Mm. So that's, that, or taking in plastic. So um, is, it, is, know, it, is it something I, that you were always interested in, Joe? Yeah, well, we have, like I, I would say, I know it's very topical now to be doing stuff mm. like this, but we've been doing it for 15 years and uh, basically took the initiative to get up and do something about it rather than give out about it not being done. And um, so it has had a great benefit for our community. And along with that, we've done, you know, we've educated, no, we think we've educated, you know, the kids in the community into, you know, the need for recycling and uh, for a cleaner and better environment. So, I like to think that we've been doing this for you know, for it takes a long time, and uh, I know now there's there's it's the it's national and worldwide conversation, mm. uh, you know, to 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 uh, reduce plastics and reduce waste. So I'd like to think we've we've done a small part in that. I love. I'd like to thank our community and the bond. Like I wouldn't been able to have been able to do it without the people come out with me year after mm. year. Like at the recent events, the the people who helped me were up at six o'clock in the morning. And didn't get home until you know probably eight o'clock that evening uh, for nothing. 
You know, they didn't, yeah. you know, just for, for no time. Oh, absolutely. They, yeah. I, I mean, they talk about the three ors, uh, reduce, reuse and recycle. This is yeah. uh, the recycling part of it. Uh, as a, a result of people beginning to recycle, are, are they trying to reduce the amount of plastics uh, and recyclable materials uh, that they actually use? Yeah, well, they actually are, and I know there's a say the conversation is around that now, and we we we've taken the initiative too to to um, introduce something here in Ashburn, and it's going to be happening quite soon. We're looking at some at machines now where you can go in and use a barcode, put in your bottles, and that. And they have they have one installed and carry them across, but there's thousands of them installed all over the world. So we're we're looking at, at something like that now. A, a refund scheme. Yeah, that's correct. Mm-hmm. And some of the benefits community are benefit the individuals and encouragement to get people to to do that. And also, we'll be looking to uh, to um, have conversations with the supermarkets and you know around like because there that's where the plastic originates most of it. So we have conversations with, with with those groups to see if they would would work with us and maybe uh, having paper bags instead of having plastic bags and uh, uh, to also reduce the amount of packaging. And I think, like, last year we won the event, uh, 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 one of the events, one of the awards, and, you know, it's amazing the platform it gives you to to people when you're up and ask, well, how do you do it, or what are you doing, or how can we, how can we mm. engage the community? So I think it, it's, it's um, and I think, you know, it's too late to be trying to stop the plastics when they're at sea because of all the, like, you know, the logistics involved in that. So it's better off trying to stop them before they get to the sea and to educate people and to say, listen, do we really need this? There's another way. We have the technology out there that can that can come up with a better solution than having plastics that take thousands of years to get rid of in, in the environment. Okay, well, it's a, a repack award as such in Europe for the We Champion Award as well as the overall Pac-Man Award. Uh, best of luck with that, but congratulations on the work that you've done, which uh, I think is probably more important to you than the awards themselves. And yeah, thanks for joining great. us. Thank yeah, you thank indeed, you Joe. Much, thank you very much, uh, Joe Bonner, Independent Councillor on Meath County Council. Now let's go back uh, to some of uh, the calls. What else have you got there, Marie? In relation to the budget, Dermot was listening in and he says... I'm nearly 60, Michael. I have a few more years left to work, please God. But I'm very worried about how I'm going to manage once I retire as I don't have a private pension and will be dependent on the state pension. I think there should definitely be an increase in the old age pension every year to match rising costs. I don't think that's too much to ask. Lily texted in to say the two euros given in the budget wouldn't buy half a bale of briquettes. Mm. Hillary says this government infuriates me in relation to planning. It's all very well to be thinking about playing a part in addressing climate change but what about those who genuinely can't afford to pay more money for fuel and have no chance of being able to carry out so-called energy efficiencies in their homes because they simply can't afford it so what okay. are they to do? Yeah, and that comes back I suppose to the first comment uh, because uh, the two euro is not meant to pay for more briquettes or more coal it's meant to help offset the increase in the cost of briquettes and coal or home heating oil uh, come next uh, summer as a result of the increase in the carbon tax. Just on the farmers uh, situation, a texture says uh, farmers give out about the government, they're jumping up and down at the moment, Michael, become the next election who will they vote for? Yes, it'll be Fine Gael and then they wonder why things never change. Anne agrees with the sentiment expressed by the Farmers Journal, the behaviour of those farmers yesterday she felt was unacceptable, it's not the way to achieve anything, they may be angry but all they did was let them make themselves look bad. 
Now let's uh, go to uh, the papers or some headlines in uh, the papers about one story from uh, the Circuit Civil Court yesterday. Uh, The Irish Times reporting in its headline, Crash Injury Claimant Pictured Doing Somersaults. And the Irish Independent on the same story, Boy in €60,000 Injury Case Filmed jumping off bridges. Uh, this has uh, to do with a teenager who was 13 uh, at uh, the time of uh, crash. Uh, he was a backseat car, uh, passenger in a, a car uh, and uh, apparently uh, he was claiming €60,000 in a personal injury claim until solicitors produced Pictures of him on Facebook uh, doing somersaults, jumping off bridges and uh, obviously not in any state of injury at all. Uh, Apparently the court uh, took a break for lunch and after lunch were told that the claims had been withdrawn. Let's talk about this and some other issues with Linda Murray, who is uh, the director of the Board of uh, Alliance for Insurance Reform uh, and uh, has had problems uh, getting insurance herself as you know, as uh, the owner of Huckleberry's uh, Den Play Centre in Navan. A very good morning to you, Linda, and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. Uh, a somewhat remarkable story in that uh, it seems as though uh, this young person and his father, for that matter, were caught out. Uh, but it comes on foot of a story in the Irish Independent yesterday uh, which saw a reporter go to nine legal firms across the country looking for advice. Uh, and uh, was told uh, to be careful about using social media because uh, there are private investigators who are watching everything they do once they make a personal injury claim. Beggar's belief, really. <laughs> um, and um, I actually couldn't believe the, the thoroughness of that investigation. You know, I kinda, when I first saw the headline, I thought it might have been that, you know, they'd heard that one maybe solicitor had said it, but to have gone around nine, mm. it might surprise people to know, actually, that it's not already in place, but... We would call on solicitors to be obliged to comply with the duties of candour and inquiry now being applied to asylum cases. So in other words, that lawyers like solicitors and barristers would have to make an effort to ensure that the case they present is genuine and legitimate. So they shouldn't have to worry about what a claimant's um, social media profile is like or what their pictures are like. I mean, if you're taking a, court, if you're taking a case through a solicitor for a personal injury claim, um, you would hope that the solicitor would know and trust what you're saying is right and not have to worry about advising you on your social media uh, platforms, you know, your social media profile and what they're like. And if they are worried and they are asking you to close them down or make them private, then maybe they have suspicions. And if they have suspicions, they shouldn't be bringing the case forward. There's too many businesses closing. There's too many businesses that because of situations like this are being forced out of the market in particular. As you've seen, Michael, in a lot of, in our local areas here in Loudoun Need, um, a lot of leisure businesses have closed um, I'm sure you had Dave Robinson on there from Rathbagan Lakes, um, Pelican Promotions there. Um, another one in Avon closed uh, in January of, of this year. It's, it's just becoming so difficult to operate when things like this are happening. Right. Uh, and it would seem as though some of the claims, at least, are fraudulent claims uh, and uh, they're being facilitated uh, by these uh, solicitors who are obviously uh, gaining from it themselves. Maybe so. I mean, you know, I, I obviously would never know for sure, and, and the solicitor and the law society would always say that they would never knowingly bring a case to court that they would suspect is fraudulent or highly exaggerated. I'd have my own suspicions on that because some of them that are coming out, 
some of the headlines recently, it just, it does, as I said, as I started, beggars belief that cases like this can actually get as far as they get. It really does. Um, and we're, thankfully, we're seeing more and more of them being thrown out and dismissed. Um, I know in our, in our own industry, we've had um, a couple of people who have actually presented social media pictures on behalf of themselves. Um, so, sorry, social media pictures on behalf of claimants for their own businesses. Um, and where an insurance company will come back and say, okay, we can see that your social media pictures of the claimant shows that the claimant isn't, you know, mm. um, injured in the way that they say they are. But um, we're probably still going to settle because it's, it's too expensive to bring it to court anyway. Well, I so, mean, if you look at this case yesterday, uh, the uh, young boy and his father didn't return to court after lunch uh, before lunch, they were claiming €60,000, uh, but some Im- I- images uh, of uh, his state of health uh, changed uh, their mind in terms of taking that claim. Yeah, yeah, I think there was a lot of images of him um, a few months later, some assaulting off bridges and diving into water and all that type of thing. Mm. So thankfully it worked in that case, and um, and you would hope that it would continue to work, but if solicitors are advising um, people not to, or to uh, make their accounts private and not public, and this information can't be found, they're advising them as well that investigators and thankfully the insurance companies are now employing investigators to go out and actually take pictures and investigate scenarios because we're all sick of the situation and we're all suffering because of it. Um, but um, as you see in that investigation report yesterday, solicitors are advising people that there might even be an investigator around you. So if you're saying that you're do- not able to do an activity like football or boxing or something and you're actually out there doing it, there could be an investigator behind you taking a picture. I mean, even to advise that, you know, I mean, oh, look, it's just, (laughs) the whole whole situation Mm. is very frustrating. It's very frustrating. But it's Um, a lot of money, €60,000, isn't it? Well, they they actually were suing for 60000 each. Mm. The dad was suing and the son was suing suing on behalf, yeah. Yeah. a huge amount of money. Um, And that's, you know, again, uh, thankfully, uh, Michael, we spoke about this, the Judicial Council Bill was passed in July of this year. Um, The Judicial Council means that um, a selection of judges will actually have to sit together and come up with the right awards, or what they deem to be the right awards for fair injuries. Um, and um, it was uh, commissioned there uh, com- a couple of weeks ago, and we're hoping that the judges will be sitting down very, very soon. We don't want to wait the two and a half years that it could possibly take, because more and more businesses will be forced to close. So we would hope that all of these awards will come down. We know that we're at least four and a half times higher than our UK counterparts, and even if you look at other countries in Europe, we could be up to ten times higher here. And these are for soft injuries. I mean, I came across a case in the last couple of days, one of our members in Pali, um, and where a child had a little um, cut uh, above the eye and mm. the uh, reserve on it is 48,000. No stitches or anything required. I mean, we're just paying out ludicrous amounts of money um, for, for scratches and things that we wouldn't have even thought about doing years ago. Uh, and it seems that for whatever reason uh, or whatever the logic of it is uh, that it's cheaper to pay out than to test the claim. Liberty Insurance did test the claim here uh, and uh, perhaps uh, that it is part of the solution that uh, when people make these claims that they're tested uh, and uh, that seems to be what's the legal firms are advising people now that you run the risk of having it tested whether they should be giving that advice to people or not or doubting the claims or the validity of the claims themselves uh, but are, are, are you hopeful that uh, it is the situation that private investigators will be put on this uh, and the likes of Facebook and that will be monitored to see if people are actually injured I'm very hopeful about the whole situation or I would have just hid myself under a blanket about a year ago Michael 
Um, I'm still working extremely hard to try and get reform across with the Alliance for Insurance Reform. Um, and if I wasn't hopeful, as I said, I'd, I'd be running away from my business at this stage. I'm very hopeful that all this is going to change. And I can even see it by people walking into the doors and our members would say the same. Um, that a lot of people have actually, not that they've woken up to it, but they've become extremely surprised um, that these type of cases are actually getting to where they are. And they're in shock. They're raging about it. They know that it's a very select few people who do it. Um, so by investigators going out, by the different types of reform, especially mm. the Judicial Council Bill with the awards coming down, if awards come down, there's not as much of an appetite um, to actually go and try and seek a claim. If... Um, fraudulent or highly exaggerated um, cases are found to be highly exaggerated or fraudulent and that they are then prosecuted, that's another way of stopping it. And I believe that we will get all this across the line. Um, it is at a snail's pace, um, but we're getting there. And I think by getting there, it'll mean and ensure the survival of uh, businesses in Ireland. One of uh, the solicitors uh, reported on in the Irish Independent yesterday is said to have told uh, the Irish Independent's reporter that there's a chance that private investigators will photograph them uh, and if a case is struck out, then we reserve the right to recover all costs against you. Uh, In other words, if you're letting on, uh, well, we're not going to take responsibility for it. Yeah, Uh, yeah. Um, and the responsibility should be there. There should be an onus on the solicitor to ensure that what they're getting from their client is truthful in as much capacity as they can. Um, but again, if you go into a solicitor and you are coming in with a highly exaggerated or a fraudulent case and a solicitor does say that back to you, again, maybe that's a good deterrent to know that you know if you are found to be fraudulent or that this is highly exaggerated, that we will seek to recover costs, which, as we know, would be very high. Okay. We leave it there for the moment, Linda. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Linda Murray, who owns Huckleberry's Den Play Centre in Navin, is uh, Director of uh, the Board of the Alliance for Insurance Reform. Now, back uh, to the ongoing dispute between parents and students of Colossalou and indeed uh, the school uh, and the Department of Education, uh, as well as uh, the Loudmead Education Training Board. Uh, we're joined once again by Aidan Kinsley. You held a, a public meeting in uh, the Crown Plaza as uh, this uh, dispute continues into the sixth week, is it? That's correct. Yeah. T- 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 tell us the mood of the people at this stage. Is uh, there confidence that there will be a resolution found now? It's mixed, I suppose. Um, while we're very hopeful, the uh, meeting last night was very useful uh, in terms of uh, people getting an, an explanation exactly where things stand and uh, where we are at the minute uh, resulting from the explanation from last night the Department of Education have uh, tasked the ETB uh, to help resolve it and until they hear back from the ETB uh, as to how that status changes uh, the Department are saying that the matter is firmly within the hands of the ETB <clears throat> There were proposals last night that could mean uh, collaboration with the ETB, by the ETB with a, uh, another patron body and force the Trinica. Uh, and parents are hopeful that something will come of that. Um, but that requires the department, the Department of Education consent. So while we're hopeful, the ball is with the Department of Education potentially.
Last time I spoke to you, Aidan, uh, there uh, appeared to be some optimism over how uh, there was uh, an effort to recruit on behalf behalf of uh, the school. Uh, They'd uh, advertised uh, teaching posts uh, for Colosse de Lou. What happened there? Um, They're continuing to advertise. um, They can't get the the staff, is is it? They're they're continuing to advertise for Irish for teachers who are able to teach through Irish, um, and uh, to give the ETB their due, they are working very hard on that. However, the response has been limited. Um, now, any response is welcome, but the response ultimately has been limited. And um, we're told by teachers that it's very much down to the time of the year uh, that effectively that. To use a football analogy, the transfer window is closed mm. because the school year started, and there's very few teachers looking to move uh, during the school year. So, uh, the immediate resolution of providing Irish edu- Irish teachers is uh, unlikely to happen for the balance of this year. Right, uh, which uh, is a, of concern to you, obviously, but all the more so for exam students. Um, for all students, exam students in particular, uh, the leaving cert students are, are hit most hard. Uh, they're now having to look at as to whether they translate all of their um, coursework from last year into English this year and then attempt to learn, relearn it in English and learn the rest of the course subjects in English to fit it in English. Um, this is causing particular difficulties in technical subjects, uh, science, mathematics, mm-hmm. uh, physics, history, and so on, where there's a lot of terminology. Uh, so it's not an easy task, and it's, it's not fair. Some parents are wondering whether they should uh, get their children to reset the entire year if they can find a, an Irish medium school, mm-hmm. or even an English medium school, because it could take a whole year for them to readjust. It's not something they can just uh, switch back out of and... Um, and pick up in a matter of a few days or even a couple of weeks. Mm. And uh, I guess decisions on that will hinge on the results. Uh, but uh, in, in the meantime, uh, you're saying that there is little prospect of a resolution for any of the students this year. There's ideas floated um, which require the department which require the ETB to collaborate and the department to agree. Mm. So it's not that. There's nothing out there. There is the potential for a solution, which could happen quite quickly. Um, but it does take um, large bodies to, to move faster than maybe they're used to. Mm. But you still believe it's possible. Uh, it's not a, a question of returning to this next year, next September. Well, the, the, the reality is, is, and I have two children currently at the school, yep. one in first year and one in junior, third year, third year. Um, she's struggling with doing stuff in English uh, in an exam year, but it's not as important as leaving cert. Um, but if they spend the balance of this year being taught subjects through English, they will not be able to return to learning subjects through Irish next year. Mm. So that goes to the entire the entire school, um, which leaves that if they are successful in recruiting some teachers in September. Uh, next September, that there's no students who will actually avail of them because they'll have done an entire year in English and won't be able to go back. Okay, so it's a, a narrow window of opportunity that is yeah, becoming is all the narrow. narrower all the time, yes. Okay. Yeah. 
Okay, Aidan, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thanks uh, for the update. Aidan Kinsler, Secretary of uh, the Kloshtalu Parents Council. The Michael Reed Show. It's probably not uh, unusual for people on uh, the internet uh, to be uh, a little bit surprised if not shocked at uh, results uh, they get from Google searches. You can put in the most innocent of uh, terms and see awful material result in your search. Last December, independent uh, Senator Joan Freeman uh, told uh, the Shannon that she Googled the word suicide. The first thing that came up, she said, was a HSE website advising people people to let somebody know if they had concerns uh, about uh, suicide. Uh, The second thing that came up uh, was uh, the website of a a charity that deals uh, with suicide intervention. But the third website that came up encouraged and instructed people on how to take their own lives. She went on to say that 39% of children between 8 and 11 have a smartphone, 83% of uh, children between 12 and 15 have a, a smartphone, and that a quarter of young people between the ages of 11 and 16 have come across harmful content online anorexic and bulimic websites, self-harm websites and websites on which suicide was discussed. Uh, She was introducing a a bill that hopes uh, to deal with all of these problems on the internet and it'll go back uh, to the Shannas this week. Uh, She's giving a detail of uh, the impact uh, that this legislation will have on how people use the internet uh, today with Dr Mary Aiken who's a cyber psychologist and a Associate Professor at the Department of Law and Criminology in University East London. And a very good morning to you, Dr. Mary Aiken, and thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. It seems like a, a nod thing for a website to be set up to give that type of advice to people, whether it's on how to take your own lives or how to be anorexic successfully. Why is that the case? What is the interest in these things? Um, just, Michael, before we start, because we're talking about very sensitive issues here and could be distressful for some people listening, I would just say to parents or caregivers, if there are young children listening to this, that they may want to, um, you know, put them in yes. another room while, okay. while we're discussing about, you know, such serious topics. Sure. Um, or if somebody's distressed by this content, that they, you know, that they seek help from appropriate resources afterwards. I mean, this is the challenge. We're talking about something very serious. We're pointing to where this information lies. And, you know, the challenge for me in terms of duty of care is that awful balance between wanting to raise these issues in a public context and still at the same time worrying about people who are vulnerable who might be listening to this. But we have no choice other than to raise these very serious issues in the whole discussion around online harm because websites that promote anorexia, self-starvation, websites that promote cutting, and websites that promote more extreme um, actions are freely available online and freely available through search Mm. and freely available to children and to young people. Who's behind these websites? Who wants to promote uh, this type of activity? Well, you can have a misguided you know, misguided belief in terms of, say, for example, the anorexia website, this is a form of distorted thinking. It's, you know, in the realm of abnormal psychology. Now, if you had an 11-year-old girl in your family who had some form of body dysmorphia, she thinks something is too big or she's too 
um, heavy or certain you know features mm. in your body or are too large um, or are or, or, or just you know abnormal in her thinking or his thinking even the the when these communities form online what they help to do is to distort to normalize and socialize normal thinking so the same you know, young person in their family, if they said to their parents, look, I think I'm overweight, their parents might reassure them and say, actually, you're not, you're fine. If they said it to a teacher, the teacher might say, you know, you're fine, or here's, you know, somebody you can go to to talk to to help you. But when they meet these clusters of, you know, sort of distorted thinking online, not only will that group say this is the right thing to do, but they will actively promote and pass on tips to people who are already likely severely underweight, and they will then encourage further weight loss. It's very hard to understand, uh, but that is uh, the reality of uh, the situation. Uh, how, how can legislation stop these websites from influencing young people? Well, the point is that the specific things that we're talking about in terms of online harm fall under a whole spectrum of online harm behaviour, which ranges from cyberbullying through to trolling, through to sexting behaviours, through to this sort of self-harm behaviours, through to even talking about, you know, potentially addictive behaviours online or addictive type behaviours. So there's a whole spectrum of online harm behaviours. Now, in the UK, they have a very good uh, piece of legislation, a white paper that's going through at the moment, in the area of online harm, which is looking at this broad spectrum. Here in Ireland, I mean, I've been involved in this area actively for over a decade. Mm. We have made little or no progress in that entire timeline. From the publication of the report, the Internet Internet Content Governance Advisory Report, I sat on that group. We published in 2014, five years later, little or no activity in terms of the findings of that report. From the Law Reform Commission report published in 2016, making specific recommendations, I advise that group, here we are three years later with little or no activity. And that's why I've worked closely with Senator Joan Freeman to actually architect this bill to start with these, this particular cluster of an online harms. You know, there is no counter argument mm. as to why a child should be able to access this content online to try and actually put pressure on our government to take the area of online harm seriously and more importantly for the parents, families and young people of Ireland to do something about it. Uh, and you uh, detail what uh, is online harm, incitement to suicide, encouraging self-harm, uh, prolonged yes. nutritional deprivation or uh, any unsafe practice that would endanger the health and well-being of uh, the child. Uh, but uh, h- how would this be policed uh, and uh, how would it uh, be removed from the internet uh, if this legislation was to be uh, introduced? Well, we've a long way to go in terms of, of the legislative process. And in fact, um, I'm just on my way into Leinster House to, to brief members of the Shannon on the bill. And effectively this afternoon, we'll be meeting with stakeholders at two o'clock, you know, the, the social technology and the social media companies who are actively involved in this space. And we'll be having that discussion. The point is, the point at which we have a legislative tool that deems this content unsuitable or illegal in terms of children accessing it, then the problem falls to the technology companies in terms of compliance. 
In other words, that's a long way of saying it is the problem of the people who actually distribute, promote, broadcast and publish this content to actually take it down. Uh, And can that be directed from Ireland uh, for uh, activity on the World Wide Web? I mean, quite often the problem is uh, that Mm -hmm. you may have a complaint in this country about something that's happening in Australia or Timbuktu, as the case may be. Absolutely. So when content is hosted on servers that are external um, to this country, then basically that's a little more problematic. But what we can do is stop internet service providers, social media entities in this country from circulating that external content to Irish users. On the likes of Facebook or um, some of these other social media platforms, is it? If they actively were taking down this content then effectively, then that would help to mitigate the problem. Okay, but the websites would uh, continue, would they not? They would continue, but effectively, we can also look at at, uh, technical solutions that would block them. Mm. Completely in the country? Yes. And that is possible, is it? Yes. Oh, right. Uh, that calls, a, on, that calls into question a, a lot of things then, doesn't it? I mean, if uh, sites like that can be blocked nationally, uh, it calls into question uh, why uh, a lot of the pornography or the gambling sites or, or so on are, are not blocked. Well, the point is about it's a question of filtering. So we can actually look at, you know, and this is a large and complex problem space. So mm. whether you filter at source, whether you filter in the home, whether you ask the internet service providers to filter. I don't want to be prescriptive about a solution. I want to involve stakeholders, involve the the social technology companies, involve the internet service providers, and actually collectively talk about what is the most workable solution in this space to protect minors. We can also extend the solution into the area of age verification online where we specifically look at verifying metrics, where we block this content for children who are under the age of 18 or under the age of 16, depending on what we deem the cut-off point, will, the, what the cut-off point will be. Mm-hmm. And in that way, you don't get into the censorship debate in terms of blocking adults from viewing content that they decide to view. And theoretically we do that, uh, in that uh, there's uh, children who are online who are claiming they're older than they actually are. Well, that's the problem, because we rely on self-verification metrics, which are as good as useless. Mm. In other words, and if you take a real-world example, you know, if you had a 10-year-old child walking up to two bouncers at the door of a nightclub and saying, I'd like to enter, Mm. and the bouncers asked that child, how old are you? And the child says, I'm 18. That's what self-verification is online. So it is hopeless, useless as a metric of governance. Okay. Well, interesting stuff, no doubt. Uh, We'll uh, leave it there for the moment. We'll hear more uh, about uh, this legislation uh, and how it's received uh, by the Senators in the coming days. Uh, But thank you indeed uh, for joining us here this morning. Dr. Mary Aiken, cyber psychologist and associate professor at uh, the Department of Law and Criminology at University East London. The Michael Reid Show. 
Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda you're investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Sergeant Vincent Jackson, the Regional Crime Prevention Officer, joins us for the report this week. And we begin with some shotguns that have been stolen, shotguns and ammunition for that matter. This follows a burglary in Navan. That's right. Good morning, Mike. Yeah, this was a serious burglary. It occurred uh, on the Windmill Road in Bew Park in Navan last Friday, uh, the 12th of October, between 5.30 and um, 11.45. And quite an amount of um, items were taken, but in particular we were very concerned that two shotguns were taken, a single barrel Bakel, and then uh, another the over and under Bakel shotgun 12 gauge uh, these are we would imagine now in the hands of criminals and there we're very very concerned a number of shotgun cartridges were also taken the house was broken into while, the, while it was vacant the injured parties were away it was ransacked the, and the entry was by the rear window so we'd be asking anybody in the windmill road area of Navan last Friday who may have seen anything or if anybody knows of any persons that have these uh, Firearms. They're very, very dangerous. We yeah. would, uh, or if you're offered firearms for that matter, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, you uh, make, make the call to Navin Gardaí 046-903-6100 or indeed the confidential number. Okay, uh, our next report is of some money that was uh, stolen. It's uh, a somewhat uh, unusual report in terms of the currency, some Australian dollars. Uh, they were taken from uh, the car belonging to a tourist. Yes, indeed, and a tourist visit, visiting us locally here in Monastery the boys at the Round Tower last Wednesday, uh, the 9th of October, between uh, 4.45 and 5.30. And as usual, you know that location, Mike, tourists will go in and they visit the old cemetery, but the car was broken into and uh, an Australian passport was taken actually in some other property. But more importantly, and we might be able to make some progress here, Australian dollars, 200 euros worth of Australian dollars were taken. They're unusual notes and we would be appealing to people in the Bureau of Change and in the finance sector locally and wider community to keep a lookout for those and if anybody gets any information to ring Drahadagardi 041-987-4200 OK, we go to Dunlear next uh, a burglary uh, that occurred on the Dundalk Road Yes, this happened last Tuesday this day week actually uh, between 5 to 9 and 10 past 9 and it was the home of an elderly person on the Dundalk Road Dunlear where three males entered the house now Luckily, uh, she was able to activate her alarm, disturb them, and they fled. Now, we have witnesses report seeing a silver Audi A3 with these three males on board, and they went in the direction of Castle Bellingham. So, uh, we would be appealed to anybody this day week, if you're in that area, the Dundalk Road, Dunlear, did you, did you remember seeing anything? Maybe you had a dash cam on, maybe you were driving a van doing some delivery. Uh, if you, you might have information you don't know about for us and the Gardaí uh, and Trada 041-987-4200 okay. contact our, our next uh, incident uh, occurred in Drogheda and it's uh, a number plate that was stolen that Guardian investigation yeah th- mm. this happened last Saturday Mike uh, at um, a, the, a local hotel here in Drogheda where a registration was taken off a silver Ford Mondeo the registration is 11 D eight five seven four, and we appeal to customers with ANPR recognition and their CCTV cameras in their forecourts to uh, place an alert on this registration number because we feel it will be probably used in some criminal enterprise. I give the number again: eleven D eight five seven four.
8574. Okay, well, it was uh, not taken for any good purpose, uh, I'm sure. Um, uh, Before uh, we conclude, uh, that finishes uh, the report, but uh, a couple of other things uh, to mention is a a JPC meeting, a Joint Policing Committee meeting coming up in uh, Meath this week. Yeah, in Kells tomorrow night at 7.30pm and public are invited to attend. And we just want to mention, uh, just from figures, uh, Mike, um, risk to life and injury. Um, In the past week in the the region, we've had... uh, uh, 16 people arrested for drink driving, 15 people for uh, um, assaults, and 11 people arrested for possession of drugs. All these can be can cause personal harm or harm to another. Mm, and and that was in the course of the last week, was it? Just in a week, Mike. Yeah, it's an interesting sad stack that, that uh, people are still taking the risk. Okay, yeah. Very interesting. Uh, 16 people uh, driving under the influence. Uh, that's yeah. drink driving, obviously. That's yes. drink driving, yeah. All right. Okay. Interesting, as you say. Uh, just to remind people as well, if you have any information on any of uh, the crimes uh, that you heard uh, this week, uh, the Garda Confidential Line is one eight hundred treble six treble one. Our thanks to Sergeant Vincent Jackson, the Crime Prevention Officer for the region, and we'll return to the Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. That's where we leave you for today, because our time has run out on us once again. Remember, there'll be a podcast of today's programme available on our website later this afternoon. That's on lmfm.ie. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching, and Chris Murray in the control term. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am, right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm.